Hey everyone, it's Jordan. We have a really inspiring conversation coming up with my dear friend Mike Silberman. I think it's important to note that this chat took place a couple weeks ago, and after speaking with Matt and Justin, we agreed that it wouldn't feel right to just run this episode as is without saying anything at the start. Look, racism and prejudice against black people is real in this country and throughout the world. We realize many of you look to us for advice. That has never been our intention. Our aim has been to share our perspectives and energy with honesty and for good. We trust and respect the audience we attract, creatives with a commitment to self-improvement. This process is never ending, and the black community deserves our attention. On this continent, this is over 400 years in the making, from slavery to segregation to redlining, for-profit prisons, and so on. As white men, we have a responsibility to continue doing better. This is a time for great humility. We need to open our eyes and we need to listen with an open mind and an open heart. There is no one right answer and that's okay. This work is uncomfortable and it should be, but choosing the illusion of short-term comfort never plays out. Black people deserve better and the only way out is through. We can only navigate this if we're all committed. It may be a massive understatement, but it remains important to say that in fact, black lives matter. We're live. Yes. This is our third attempt. Um, I guess when Matt doesn't <laughs> join us, uh, we run into issues. But let's see if we can put this back on the track, as they say in the uh, train industry. Uh, Matt is moving into his house right now. I feel like I'm repeating myself 400 times. Uh, Michael A. Silberman. What's the middle name again? Abrian. 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 Okay, so let's just start like here. Brian. Right. So we met, Justin and I met Mike. Mike was the singer of a band called Voodoo Blue. Uh, when Justin and I were in grade school, Voodoo Blue was like the shit as far as a local band. Uh, they, they were contemporaries of Spinfire, the band that Matt played drums in. So Mike, on those records, like you used that middle name as your stage last name, correct? Yeah, correct. I remember that. Huh. Were you ashamed of Silberman or were you just trying to like do the old Hollywood trick of like not letting everyone know that you're a Jew? Who wants a rock star that's with Silberman? That's awful. It's like Ron Zimmerman is Bob Dylan. Bob Dylan is I like Bob Dylan. Ron Zimmerman. I'm not buying Ron Zimmerman's albums. You know what I mean? Silberman just didn't have the, uh, the, the, the right connotation. I didn't like it. Fair enough. I would argue that the 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 skin tight like leopard pants would have been like just fine as far as like coming off as a rock star. There you go, um, that's true. But anyway, um, so we, we tried this a couple times. Uh, you were talking about the HF Festival mm -hmm. in 1998. Um, the HF Festival at the time, for those who don't know, WHFS was like the major alt-rock station on the East Coast. You had K-Rock on the West Coast and HFS on the East Coast. Uh, each May, around this time, actually, they threw a stadium festival. Around that time, it sold out like instantly. 
Justin and I, in 1998, that was the first time we ever went to an HF festival. I talk about it still. It changed my life. And Mike, it sounds like it changed your life as well. Um, so so why, why don't you share, for those who don't know, um, like what it was about that, that day that just, you know, you decided then and there, like, I want to do that now. Yep. Uh, again, I mean, just to regurgitate, music has always been an important part of my life. And I love music. I love everything about it, from the performance side of it to being able to express yourself in a way that, that isn't as maybe... Um, you know, intrusive as talking to one another, at least for me when I was younger, <clears throat> being able to write a song and perform it was a way of expressing myself, but also in a cowardly way, because I couldn't do it normally with other people. I could pretend to be somebody else and and that worked for me really well. So, you know, music's always been a big thing for me. And, and when I went to that, I think that was my third concert was the H Festival. You know, my father, I was blessed. He took me to see Aerosmith and Metallica were my first two concerts when I was really little. And then I snuck out and went to HF Festival. And yeah, there's bands all day. You're in the mud. There's drugs. There's people running around topless. And for a 15-year-old, it was like, this is the fucking coolest thing I've ever seen in my life. I love everything about this. You're drinking. You're doing all these different things. And then finally, when it wound down and the headliner came on, was Green Day. And I mentioned before, the, the song they came out with was Time of Your Life, which was really popular back then, especially every high school graduation had it and you know, so on and so forth. And um, they shut the stadium lights down. A dude in a hot dog outfit and a hamburger outfit came out with a trumpet and a trombone and they played taps. I was just flabbergasted. After they're done taps, the drum set blows up. It's on fire. It's just this flaming disaster in the background. And Billy Joe comes out with an acoustic guitar and plays Time of Your Life. It did. It changed me, man. From that moment, I was like, that is, that's it. That's what I want to do. I want to be on that stage. I want to have the same effect that I'm feeling right now and be able to give that to somebody else. And um, I don't want to do anything else. That was, it, it changed my life tremendously. That's cool, man. I, I have this memory. It was like, you know, hot sun, midday, and I bought some nachos and I was walking back to my seat and some random guy just fucking took a chip right out of my nacho <laughs> dipped it and ate it and like i was so shocked at like wow you can just do this when you're here <laughs> it's my life it was That's amazing, amazing. That's yeah, awesome. awesome. um so <laughs> you were in you were in voodoo blue you were the yep. singer uh for years i think you you guys probably maybe put out like four albums from from my memory yep. yeah um and you did a lot i mean you you played i've seen you play Lollapalooza. The last mm -hmm. year that it was a touring festival, um, you guys would sell out, uh, you know, the, the the local venues like you know thousand cap rooms. I mean, you guys were were really successful, um, it, it, you know, relatively for for most bands that ever tried to uh, have the audacity to go on stage and play their own songs. Um, so the the life that you live now is like a world apart from that, uh, and and we'll talk about your evolution of how you got to this office uh, that you're sitting in right now um, with a bunch of employees, one floor below you doing, I'm sure a lot of this. Yep, yep. Um, but when you look back on your life as a musician, like what, what's your impression of all that? I'm, I'm grateful for the experience, man. I really believe that it morphed me into who I am now. It's just, there's really not much difference that I find running a business than there is writing music. In a way, it's the same way of having creative energy and expelling that creative energy, but in a different avenue, right? And for music, for me, it was, I can be very focused. 
I just I, I'm I'm very lucky in a sense where if I have a goal, I don't care what else is around. It's it's how do I accomplish the goal? And back then it was I wanted to play music. That was all I wanted to do. I didn't care about anything else. And um, you know, we tried to do that. And it's really cool because you know our our relationships that we've had since back then. And I don't want to leave this part out. It's just it's it's exciting for me every time I even hear anybody talk passionately or positively about an impact that I perhaps made or or my band back then had made. That's what it was all about. It, it really was. Back then, it wasn't about money. It, it was about making an impactful impression on somebody else through something that I was feeling, creating something from nothing, and then expressing that to somebody else and having them relate to it, um, which is, you know, that's what it, this was all about. That's what music's all about. So it's, I, I'm extremely grateful for that because most people that I deal with in the real world now don't have that same experience by any stretch of the imagination. And, um, yeah, I think that has given me most of the attributes that I have now. Just now, I'm morphing them into a positive way, rather than allowing the uh, you know the negative side of of that uh, lifestyle uh, consume me. So we'll jump into that, and I'm curious about like Justin's impressions of just you as as a musician when we were younger <laughs> and and legit paying fans of yours. Um, but real quick, a couple weeks ago, I did this uh, really dumb uh, content campaign on Instagram stories called hashtag Steve Belenke week. And Steve Belenke, just a guy I went to high school with. Uh, he, he was at the same college. We shared a bathroom. Uh, but he's one of those guys <laughs> like I don't interact with too often. And I knew that by creating content around his name, uh, I would be attracting uh, all those different kids that I went to grade school with that grew up in the same neighborhoods. And Mike, you generously made a quick video saying you're happy hashtag Steve Belenke and you were the star of that entire thing. <laughs> like people were freaking out uh, because uh, you, I don't know if you realize the impact and the impression that you made on like hundreds of people that we all grew up with that were maybe a few years younger than you. And I'm sure a few years older than you as well. Um, and I think the fact that you kind of left that behind and then went on this, this other path of your life, still with, with wild success, but you weren't this public figure to people around us that would go see you perform. Uh, I think for them to see you again, it was like really joyful and exciting for them. That's awesome. I mean, that kind of stuff gives me goosebumps because I don't usually hear that perspective. At the same time, you know, I used to think that we were, we were great and we had some regional success, but at the same time, you know, there's a level of humility that always has to be there with anything. And I never truly can understand how someone else feels unless I'm told this or I hear it from somebody else. And I would never ask. It just seemed inappropriate to me. But when I hear stuff like that, it's really incredible. It, it truly is. I mean, I loved what we did with Voodoo Blue. I, I cherish it. I have pictures in my, my home. Um, I met my wife on tour, for Christ's sake. I mean, really, my life now has been built around, you know, that uh, that side of things. And I desperately miss performing. It's funny, the creative side of things I still feel fulfilled with, but the actual performance side of it, um, is something that I miss in my life uh, now. Um, so being able to hear stuff like that is really fulfilling for myself. And that's awesome that there was some impact that was made truly. Hey, Justin, what was your impression of Mike as a kid? Well, the funny thing is I remember Mike and, and I've, and I've been thinking about this just as, as you asked the question and I said, well, really, I remember Mike as a guy with like a big hemp necklace with like a big, you know, kind of a jewel or something in the middle, you know, much more hippy dippy, uh, you know, a lot more, uh, maybe, I don't know, not that you weren't free, you know, but it, you weren't this rock star. You were more, you were a different 
uh, entity back then. It was you were you were a different persona when we first met. And you were playing. It, it wasn't uh, the large regional venues or venues in Maryland. You were playing like our uncle's ice cream shop, right? And I remember Magoobies. <laughs> Is that what it's called? Carmen's. Carmen's. Oh, damn Carmen's it. Italian ice. <laughs> it was, no, Carmen's. In Florida. No, no, no. No, but we ended up, when Justin and I were on tour like 10 years later and you performed a, a, a set alongside us, that was Goofles in Florida. Goofles. That's what I was thinking. Okay. Yeah. And Not now, and, and, and when I think about this, the interesting thing is, is I remember Voodoo Blue before it was like rock and roll oriented. It was like almost jam band oriented. You had, a, you had the, you had this guy, um, Walker. Yeah, right? yeah, Brandon. On the keys. Sure. And, and the reason, the, my first impression of getting your music was going on Kazaa, like one of those illegal wow. download sites, and downloading two tracks live from the Funk Box, which is now a wow. venue called 8x10, which is more of a jam band scene. It yeah. wasn't, uh, the, maybe the fond memories that most people remember of Voodoo Blue, of thinking about these, these like big anthemic, uh, like, rock stars that are up there doing these these great songs much more predicated in the rock genre i'm thinking like really far back and i think even you know your guitar player who we love dan dan like i had this hat i had everyone sign dan signed my hat you know and and the interesting thing is i went to school with the singer of matt's band but he was six or seven years older of the band spinfire and so that was maybe the first person I looked to and said, oh, if that guy can do it, anyone can do it. But before I knew it, that kind of blueprint was off in, in the distance and was gone. And Matt's band was, you know, was no more. Uh, but Voodoo Blue stuck around. And, and for me and for my band at the time, when I was 15, 16 years old, we, we followed to a T everything that you guys did. I mean, you guys laid the blueprint of you go to this place, you go to Rightway Studios in downtown Baltimore, and you make a record. You know, you go play these, these uh, like the local rock radio is 98 Rock. You go and play the 98 yeah. Rock shows. Um, you go and play these, these theaters. You go and do this. And I mean, you guys had laid the blueprint for us, and we looked up to you guys as, oh, well, that's, that's it. That's the blueprint. That's the ticket of how you get from level one of joining the band to writing the songs to level two is now you're out there and doing it. And, and to your point of, of the HF Festival, it's funny because Jordan and I, we went, we went every year, you know, 98, both in 99, 2000. And I subsequently kept going even in the years when it like it went away and then it came back. But 98 will always be the, the pinnacle. That's, that's the one I remember the most. And I remember it like yesterday. We showed up, you know, they, they would do a, a, a local band would get to open the, the show. And who would remember the Tuscadero? I don't know who they are, but they opened. And I remember vividly because our mom was gracious enough, you know, to your point of, I think you said your dad took you to the Aerosmith shows, right? Um, yep, yep. That mom took us and we, we went outside and went fastball and Harvey Danger and we come back from Marcy's playground. I mean, I have these vivid, vivid memories. And, at, and I remember at night, because I was probably 10 or 11 years old, when Green Day went on, uh, I got the Nimrod shirt and and people were saying how cool our mom was for bringing someone so young, me at 10 or 11 years old, 1998, to this festival, you know, debauchery, and <laughs> the transmission tent. You know, I mean, this was in the, the heyday of like like EDM, but a different kind of electronic music. And I mean, wild times. And, 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 and man, um, it's, it's fun to think back on the, on those days of you prior to shaving your head and prior to those tight spandex pants. 
you know, I went to an, an all Jewish uh, sleepaway camp where you were the lead in the play, the king and I. Yeah, yeah. You know, so I knew you in a whole different light as well. I mean, but but you were always a rock star in my eyes. Thank you. That's amazing. Of course. I love so, it. So that that actually reminded me of something, but but I do want to kind of preface more generally. Um, look, most people listening to this, I'd assume, are not aware of of who you are, Mike, and and of Voodoo Blue. But here's the value in your story. And and you already kind of like hinted at this. Your ability uh, to be a performer has given you some of the, the keys to your success uh, to be a boss, to be a business owner with employees. Um, you have experienced what it's like at a young age to have like clear vision and clear passion to accomplish something in the world. You did it. And then you realized, oh, that's like the formula. You can replicate that no matter what the goal is, whether it's a band yeah. Or it's your own recovery, or it's building, um, you know, recovery centers across the United States. Um, so for those paying attention to this right now, I just want to kind of say, I know many are creatives, and and whether it's music uh, or photography or videography, writing, whatever it may be, um, it doesn't really matter what the medium is. It's through our art, through our expression of our art, through the production of our art. Uh, through the publicity of art, whatever we do with it, these are translatable skills that we can use all throughout life. Um, so whether you know who Jordan Goodman is, or whether you know who Michael Silverman is, or, or whether you know who you know Matthew J. Halpern is, like that doesn't really matter. These are universal stories, and I think that's kind of the point of of us sharing these. So so I, I just wanted to kind of create that context um, because I just don't want it to be this. Um, uh, this thing where we're really just getting at uh, like the biography of some guy in a band, right? Uh, the, 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 this is like universal wisdom and, and skills and mindsets that we all can use. Um, before we kind of move on from the Voodoo Blue days, Mike, I just want to say, and it didn't even occur to me, you fucking played the HF Festival. We did. Yeah. And you oh, did. We won in 04 and we opened. Yeah, we opened the HF Festival. It was amazing. Yeah, I remember specifically taking a Suboxin that day so I wouldn't get high and I would remember it. Mm. And that was effective? It was, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember every bit of it. The Cure was there. Jay-Z was there. I got to meet the Violent Femmes. It was amazing. We were there. Right. Right. You guys were there, of course. So, Joe, just to kind of like set the scene for you, um, the, the HF Festival, it was a stadium show. So obviously, like, The Cure, Jay-Z are going to play inside the stadium. But there was also a stage outside where you had more mm-hmm. up-and-coming bands. And then Justin mentioned that the, the, the tent, which had more of, like, the rave-style culture DJs of, of the late 90s and early 2000s. Um, but, Mike, I mean, they opened the main stage. I mean, like, a stadium. And even at, in, the, in the morning when you played, I would say tens of thousands of people. Yeah, I think it was, they estimated like 30,000 people at that point, something like that. So I'm crazy. So I'm curious, like at that point, you said, you know, you took a pill to ensure that you wouldn't get fucked up. So there's there's a a drug that had just come out at that point. It was called Suboxone. It's Mm -hmm. it's, uh, like buprenorphine. Mm -hmm. So it was supposed to be an opioid blocker. So if you ingest heroin or any other opiate, it, you're not going to get high. It won't do anything to you. It's actually the original use of Suboxone was supposed to be as a detox medication to help mitigate the painful withdrawal that comes along with opioids. Mm-hmm. 
for a short period of time and then get through that horrible part and then, you know, hopefully stay abstinent, et cetera. Now it's turned into something a little bit different. And it's been kind of um, yeah, mutated into a, a pseudo methadone. But back then I took it specifically because I knew I would not be able to control myself. And if I took that, then uh, I have a good shot of remembering everything that day. And I did. I was successful as such. I remember the whole thing. And it was it was probably one of the best days of my life. That's that's really cool to hear. But I, I, I guess the reason I, I, I bring us back to that is all the other shows that you had been playing up to that point, uh, at least in you know the, the not too far from that show. I mean, were you getting high every show? Absolutely. I picked and, up my first drug when I was thirteen, and by the time I was fifteen, it was I was I was a daily user, so I was definitely getting high at the shows. I'm really I'm really curious to that point. Um, at what point, and I think a lot of people, when we're young and we start playing music and the ego is involved and, and we haven't really, uh, we haven't developed the tools yet of, of how do we deal with this success. And now we're on a platform and people are watching us and people are coming up to us and it's easier to interact. You know, I think a lot of us, we forget that we are ourselves first as a human being. We start to identify, I don't, I, you know, I didn't identify as Justin the human. I was Justin the guy, the bass player in that BEM. Sure. At what point, and, and, and it seems like, you had started using substances prior to even playing music. But at what point did you feel that you weren't just Mike Silverman anymore? You were Mike, singer of this band. And did that play any role in this idea of maybe sex, drugs, rock and roll, and, and I've got to live this lifestyle, and I wasn't just, the, wasn't just this guy when I'm on stage. I'm supposed to be this uh, at, at all times. Sure. It's, it's really interesting that you're bringing this up because I talked to somebody about this a while ago and they assumed that I would use to maybe deal with the fear of playing in front of crowds and you know a lot of people have stage fright and stuff like that, but it was, it was the exact opposite. It's easy for me to pretend to be somebody else. And that's why I love music and performing. The same way if I did a play and played the, at the camp, at Camp Barry. If I can identify myself and say, well, today I'm this, I can go and perform. It's having to keep that persona afterwards that was difficult for me. I wouldn't use when I played the show. I'd use directly after the set was over. Mm. The second the set was over, I would run backstage and I'd have to use because the fear of speaking to people one-on-one, -on -one, there's no hiding it anymore, right? And and yes, there was – I wouldn't call it a pressure. I mean, it was a pressure I put on myself. So it's not to blame anybody. But the idea of keeping up with the um, – persona or the identity of that became so scary to me. Listen, at the end of the day, when I was younger and I've worked a tremendous amount of time on this and I still feel that way, insecurities ruled my entire existence. I wanted to be whoever you wanted me to be. And when I used, it was easier to do that and I can mask that stuff. And that's how that progressed until the physical addiction took over. But it shows specifically, it's, it's just funny that you're bringing that up. I would use directly after the show. So we would go to the merch table, sign, whatever, get, take pictures. That was the terrifying part. The, the stage performance wasn't the terrifying part, which is interesting. It's very interesting because I vividly remember being fortunate enough to, uh, you know, kind of as, as my bands when I was 15, 16, cutting my teeth and looking up to you guys, we were fortunate to get to play with the bands we looked up to, you guys included. But I'm, I'm curious, was it something that you hid? Because I don't have any recollection of this being a thing. I, I have recollection of the, uh, I'm trying to think of the right word for it, maybe like the, 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 the way that you morphed yourself into this character who's going to go on stage. You would have these 
very elaborate uh, pieces drawn on your back and, and you would get into kind of character uh, to go out and perform. But then afterwards, I don't have any recollection of you maybe dipping somewhere, hiding off, you know, and, and going and doing something else. And to me, you were always just the same guy. So was this something that you were actively trying to hide from others? A hundred percent. Yeah. I mean, you know, my band, they were my brothers. We lived in a fucking conversion van for Christ's sake for a couple of years. I mean, I lived at Dan's house. Honey was my pseudo mom. You know what I mean? These guys were my family and we shared everything together. And I still feel that way about them. I love all of them individually. Um, and, and I, I believe that, I mean, it was a bond, but they did not use, I mean, there was, you know, some like uh, some smoke weed or, or drinking, not that I'm minimizing that because now I'm, I'm in recovery. I'm clean. I, I don't do anything. I'm abstinent from, from all of that stuff. But back then, um, in our minds, using was everything else, right? The drinking and the, the marijuana wasn't using back then in, in, in our minds, everything else was, and they did not condone that behavior or, or that type of stuff. I hid it from everybody. Um, for a very long time. I mean, however, if you look back at the side, I was 97 pounds. I was like ribs and ears, man. You know what I mean? There was a lot of uh, uh, things that would probably give it away at this point, but it was not openly um, shared with people that I was using. And it hadn't turned into heroin until at the towards the very, very end of before I got kicked out, which was 04 at the end of 04. Um, I'm curious, when you say you used to deal with the pressure of sort of keeping that persona up after the gig, had you ever felt that pressure prior to being in a band or was it the sort of band that create, not the band, but the persona you found that created that pressure? No, it was definitely beforehand. I mean, my, my existence as a person to me was a pressure in and of itself. I was just a strange kid and I had a lot of insecurities. I had a voice that would talk to me every morning in my own my own voice that would say things are going to be bad, it's going to be horrible, it's not going to work out well. You should just stay in bed, you know. And people would call that depression or whatever else it is. And when I used, and I remember drinking for the first time when I was thirteen, that voice went away. It mitigated a lot of that stuff. It softened it. Um, I made a conscious decision when I was younger to to use. It didn't matter anything for you know that would make me feel something other than myself. It's interesting, Justin. You were talking about an identity. Right. And identifying ourselves as as something where back then it was I'm Mike and I'm the lead singer of this band. Um, I struggled with that big time when I was younger and trying to find an identity and isolating what I wanted my identity to be. And the truth is, even when I got clean years later, I didn't know what I liked. Truly, I knew some stuff of what I didn't like, but I had based my entire life pretty much around what I either thought other people liked so here in two, I should like that. Does that make sense? The, the ability to have original content and ideas was very, very foreign to me for a long time. It took me a very long time in recovery to start really identifying what Mike likes, you know, and not really giving a shit if other people like it or not. It makes me feel good as long as it's positive. I'm not harming anybody else, you know, that kind of thing. But that identity was a struggle for me for a long time. And the, and the drugs helped with that at, a, at a, a way younger age. So as far as like identifying the things that I would like, uh, you and I were different in that in that respect. You know, I, I think I had a clear, um, you know, it, I, I liked things that I liked and and felt comfortable in that. But what I what I do identify with in what you shared, Mike, is that uh, when that identity of Jordan being the drummer in this band, uh, when I ended that, you know, I, I was in a band with Justin that was having similar success to Voodoo Blue, you know, playing some of the same venues and selling it out. 
Um, and we were at the point where we were thinking about or actually planning a full U.S. tour. Um, I was performing in a neck brace. And because of just the physical strain, I, I ended the band at that time. And I really struggled a lot with who am I now? Because the identity of me in that band uh, was so foundational to my self-esteem. And it was so foundational to the ways that I related with others in the world. I mean, mm -hmm. if I went to a concert and I knew that even if people didn't know who I was, but I could say, hey, I'm in this band, that gave me a self-confidence where if I was going to just say like a wedding, that really wouldn't help me with, with social currency of the strangers that I might interact with at, at a given table. Um, so I, I definitely, it took a while to really wrestle with who am I now and, and even trying like different styles of dress and different friend groups and things like that. And what, what eventually found me or, or the way I found myself back, it was music. You know, it, it, I went to Bonnaroo and it was like, oh shit, this is like more interesting than the warp tour to me right now. And I felt like I belonged. Um, and, and really ever since I haven't left that, that the, the, the musician within me. Um, That's awesome. so, Mike, I, I, I want to ask, uh, and we're kind of jumping ahead to you now in this role of a co-owner of, of recovery centers, uh, mm -hmm. as a man who has been, um, you know, drug and alcohol free for a long time. Um, before, like you said the word marijuana and that was interesting to me because usually when we say like marijuana, it's like, you know, some adult, uh, who's like, or, or a narc or someone like, <laughs> you know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah, yeah. so here, here's why I bring this up. Um, obviously there's nothing wrong with the word marijuana. Um, or maybe just the fact that, you know, a bunch of white people labeled it as such to, you know, have people afraid of the, you know, people south of the border. Uh, sure. using a Spanish word. Anyway, beyond the point. Um, look, Voodoo Blue is known for the Nuggets song. Sure. Right? Uh, I still haven't been to a show where a band gift wraps like a bong and gives it to someone in the crowd. I mean, literally like a gift wrap bong is like crowd surfing. Um, <laughs> so, uh, but now you play this role in the world um, where uh, abstinence perhaps from, from weed, from cannabis, from marijuana, uh, is uh, a big part of many people's recovery. Not for all people, but for many people. Sure. Um, and, and I would assume like in a 12-step traditional program, uh, the, the wisdom would be like, don't smoke weed. I'm just assuming. Um, so I, I'm curious, like, how do you relate to that younger version of yourself? Um, Clearly, you're you're fine with other people smoking weed. Um, I don't think you know you, you have you don't have like a binary kind of mindset around this stuff. I think you're very empathetic to the experience mm -hmm. of others and realize other people can smoke weed or drink some alcohol and it can be a lovely experience for them without causing um, you know awful consequences in their lives. Um, so, like, I'm curious. Uh, <coughs> How, how do you make sense of all that? Is, is the Nugget song, like, are you proud of that? Are you ashamed of it? Like, what's that like for you? I'm very proud of everything that Voodoo Blue produced because it was something at that moment in time that we were proud of and that we created from nothing and it was what we were doing. You talked about Bonnaroo, you know, Justin talked about 
the the the, uh, the crystal and the necklace, and I, I didn't wear shoes to school for four months. Um, <laughs> I remember the first time I went to shows, like to a head show. It was like an acoustic hookah, acoustic hookah I think it was the hookah family cookout or um, recipe family cookout, excuse me. And just being in that environment <clears throat> where for all intents and purposes, you could walk around naked and nobody looked at you funny. Nobody judged you. Everyone was just happy to listen to music, smoke some weed and hang out. It was so attractive to me back then. I just loved that, that culture, that environment. And that's what I, you know, I really fed into that, um, a long time ago. And there wasn't a lot of harm. I hadn't really suffered any negative consequences at the end of the day. Here's how I look at my own addiction. And you're correct. I believe that everybody's different and someone could certainly go out and, and smoke weed and, and, and have a couple drinks. And that's totally fine. Um, I have no judgment on them whatsoever. I would never tell somebody that they should, uh, should, or should not do something for me. It's like a diabetic. I'll talk about type two diabetic. Okay. The type one's born a diabetic, right? Type two diabetes. Maybe they're born with some sort of um, tendency uh, where they might be more prone to type two diabetes. The same way that perhaps someone who's born from an alcoholic family, alcoholic father, alcoholic mother, uh, perhaps has more tendencies to have alcoholism. But type two diabetes doesn't happen unless we abuse our body enough in whatever way that is, that all of a sudden we become a diabetic, right? And once you become a diabetic, you can't not be a diabetic anymore. You can take metformin and you can take Novolog and you can inject insulin and whatever else to ultimately mitigate the exposure to the negative consequences of diabetes. But at the end of the day, you can take metformin every day and inject yourself with Novolog, but you're still diabetic. You're just not um, exacerbating the bad part of that diabetes, if that makes sense. At some point in my life, I crossed the line and I became an addict. That's what I believe. I believe that if I had stopped perhaps earlier, I I'm not really sure. I believe that I have addictive tendencies. If it feels good and I like it, I am going to fucking abuse it. I mean, that's pretty much what's been the common MO in my entire life. And a lot of what I still work on in my own recovery is just how to, um, to just streamline that and to not, I mean, cause it could be coffee. It could, uh, this is my sixth cup of coffee. Is that bad? Am I going to die? No, it'll go for my heart. Probably not. Um, again, the negative consequences aren't large enough to where I really want to stop and, and do something about that. But back to the analogy, I believe at some point I crossed the line and, and, and I became an addict. And for me, I, I do belong in a 12-step fellowship, and, and that's what worked for me. I'll have uh, 15 years clean. My clean date is July 28, 2005. So right now i got 14 and a half years. If I make it to July, God willing, I'll celebrate 15. And that's – thank you. Um, that's abstinence from drugs and alcohol. At this point in my life, and I've been asked this question a hundred times, and when I share about it at meetings or with other people who are perhaps new in recovery, I, if, if I picked up a drink right now, if this cup was filled with whiskey instead of coffee and I drank, am I going to shoot dope or smoke crack tomorrow? I do not believe that. I don't. I don't think I'm going to immediately go back to those things. It's the shame. It's the guilt. It's the backwards effect that I've changed in my life and the people that ha I, it took me a long time to earn their trust back and the respect back. And I have sponsees. I have a sponsor. I have people who are dependent on myself. Um, and it would awaken. It would awaken something in my mind and it wouldn't be what I'm looking for. And it might take a month. It might take a year. It might take five years. I don't know. But at some point, something would happen. And I absolutely believe I would get back to what, what my drug of choice was. And the second I pick that up, it's it's done. It's over. Um, it's easy for me to play that tape out. I've done it enough times. You know, my, my story isn't a one-time 
I got it and, and I figured it out. I have relapse in my story and, um, you know, I've experienced that enough. The other part is life is good, man. I'm happily married. I got kids. I got a wonderful business. Um, I love my life. I have I, people talk about like a life beyond your wildest dreams. And I have some pretty fucking wild dreams. Don't get me wrong. But nothing compares to to what I have now and the things that we can accomplish and the things that we can do. I would never even attempt to jeopardize that. Even if there was a 1% risk that if I picked up some, you know, something, um, I'd have the, the 1% chance of going back out. I, it's just not worth it to me. you know. And that's why I still go to meetings and I still sponsor people. I'm curious. I'm, re I'm really curious about a couple of things. So I work as a clinical dietitian and I get consulted a lot for diabetes education. Uh, the, the interesting parallel I find between um, uh, the addictions of whether it's food or a substance is that marijuana is now in, in for, for many intents and purposes, it's legal for a lot of people. You can go get a, a medical card and you can go to a dispensary and you can get it. It's not like it was maybe a decade ago where it was, where it was, it, it had such a, a negative connotation to it. It was painted with a big fat X. Um, alcohol, something you just, you just referenced could be in your cup, right? Is a, is a thing that is legal as well. And I often say for a person who is addicted to food, which is just another substance that, that triggers in the brain, you know, releases dopamine, serotonin, it makes us feel good. Um, it's, it's sometimes like, uh, if you're addicted to food, you have to go, it's, it's like an alcoholic going to the bar three times a day to eat your three meals. It can be that the struggle can be that real. Um, it's interesting with them, you know, with food being a, a legal uh, thing that when, when someone does struggle with it, it's very different from people who deal with, with uh, you know, whether you're an alcoholic or, or you're into drugs and you can go to AA meetings, you can go to a NA and there's all this support. Uh, on the food side, there's not because it's legal and it's become, uh, it, it's become like widely accepted for people to just be unhealthy. And to your point, you know, when you're unhealthy, if you're ill, you take a pill, right? Um, I'm curious from your perspective, if you've ever worked with people who have maybe shifted from uh, drugs and alcohol, and the next thing you know, it now they're over it, they're in recovery, they're clean, they're going to meetings, everything is going great, but now the same addiction has manifested in food or even something else, another substance, uh, something else that they sink their teeth into uh, just because they, they have this addictive quality by nature. Have you experienced a lot of that? And, and are you able to draw parallels and are you able to help them in the same ways that, that you work the steps to help someone on one side? Have you been able to do that uh, with other substances that maybe people end up turning to once they've kicked these initial addictions? A hundred percent. It's a great question. Really, the insight you guys have is, is quite tremendous. It's almost as if you had these like figured out. I'm actually very shocked by the dialogue that we're all having today. It's, it's very interesting. It's, I experienced it. I mean, I have six months clean and South Florida is a um, it's it's a, an interesting, interesting place. And it could be quite degenerate if you uh, you look in the right places. And the sober home that I was living in, I lived there for 11 months, was in a really not good neighborhood in the middle of Pompano Beach. And I stumbled upon a, uh, a strip club one day. I had six months clean. I had, at this point, you have to remember now, I'm in Florida. I got shipped there after doing um, a couple stints of treatment in Maryland. I've been arrested a couple times at this point. I got kicked out of the band that we were just talking about that I loved so much. It was one of the biggest hits to my just entire world that I've ever experienced before. The identity we talked about is completely stripped away at this point. Not only 
uh, from the band perspective, but now I'm in a different state. Nobody knows who I am. I'm basically just another schmuck living in South Florida. I attempt to get clean. I don't follow any suggestions whatsoever. And, um, and I'm miserable. This is the, I, about 90 days I was there. In my mind, I believe that Narcotics Anonymous had lied to me. I really thought that if I stopped shooting dope, I'd be happy and I'd learn how to live and be productive and go get a job and pay my bills and do my laundry and things that I really had no um, experience doing. And I, but I didn't change anything. And to your point, if we don't change, if I don't change myself, then all I'm going to be doing is rinsing and repeating, perhaps with something different and a different ailment. And um, when I made a decision to use that, you know, thankfully, knock on wood, the last time, the run was way worse. It was way more intense. It ended me up in, in a horrible place where I had the abscess and it was it turned into MRSA. And I can certainly elaborate on that if you want me to get graphic. But I then got clean, right? I got scholarships in this treatment center and I ended up in a sober home. And to your point, I hadn't, I did a little work at that point. I had gotten a sponsor. And um, I tried to start identifying things about myself, and I was just tired of, of living the way that I was living. I had convinced myself at that point, at least, I was not capable of doing one of anything. If I picked it up, I could not stop, and bad shit happened. I just kept it very, very simple. But then I stumbled upon a strip club. It didn't even have a name. It just said Gentleman's Club. It was next to a pawn shop and a laundromat. I mean, a horrible, degenerate, open at 2 in the afternoon, and the same type of tendencies that you're describing, I experienced with that until I, it took me to places I should not be and that for all intents and purposes, nobody has any business in, uh, you know, being in, in these types of situations. And then a couple of years later, but well, and thankfully I was able to talk about that and, and work uh, steps and principles behind those types of behaviors. And a couple of years later, it happened with gambling, you know, and I found myself uh, in the exact same scenario, but financially at that point with gambling. So uh, yes, it can happen quickly. The steps are created in my mind in a way to not tackle the drug. There's nothing to do with the drug. The only commonality between people and Narcotics Anonymous are that we all happen to be drug addicts and we were using that substance. But it's the reason that I used the substance, the core of why I used it, that's the problem, that's the disease. For me, the steps and the principles behind the steps help to attack places to, to better educate myself to just learn how to live in every aspect of my life in a better way, a healthier way, a cleaner way. You know what I mean? And so these things don't keep popping back up. Yeah, it's it's really interesting because I I, I always want to say it's it's great to consult uh, the dietitian, the person, the nutrition expert, come in and help the person. But really, until that person is is ready to change, right? You know, we all know where that one goes. So if someone's yeah. not ready to change, then of course, if we can we can do all the education, we can give all the tools, we can give them, provide them with every reason why they should, you know, do better in life with with making these these decisions. But it might go in one ear and out the other. And oftentimes it does. And in my head, I'm always saying, you know, psych consult, psych consult. It really needs to be, you know, is the person fit right now to change? And we all know that you can change things on the surface and eventually it's going to manifest again, either in the same thing or something else. And until you're ready to really change your mind and create new neural pathways and, and new tracks, new things that you're, you're, you know, new habits that you're brain says, oh, and this shit's hard. I dealt with my own, uh, you know, undiagnosed eating disorders growing up. And for me, I thought that, hey, I have to be a beacon for others because I didn't have someone. I wanted to be a sponsor of sorts. I wanted to go out there and and tell my story and hope that it, it has the, you know, it, it would have the chance to maybe 
resonate with someone and I could help them and kind of stop it way earlier. Because to your point of hearing the voices and all these things, it's all the same stuff. You know, addiction is addiction, right? Yep. Uh, whether it's legal or not. And and of course, the the fortunate or unfortunate side of it is that food, for me, it was a legal addiction. And and it controlled my life for, for longer than I want to think about. And it's something that I still have to keep in check because those old habits do, high, do die hard, right? And until you put the work in and you change your mindset about how you look yep. at all these things, it's way too easy to fall back into it, especially because I keep going back to the bar three times a day. You know, and 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 I, I think it's really important that that you talk about you know working the steps is 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 universal. You know, I, I think once we start to dive into you know these parts of making amends with ourselves, you know, making amends yep. with others and those that we've hurt, and we might not even know. And 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 it's even crazy to think about because there are substances that are legal that people do get themselves addicted to, and then they hurt themselves, and they can't be the best version of themselves for anyone else, especially for themselves. And I yeah. know for years, for years, music was a thing that in my head, I always identified, I thought I want to look like Iggy Pop without doing the drugs. I want it to look wiry thin. I want it to be tall, long, and lean. Well, I'm five foot two on a good day. So long and long is never going to be a thing, right? Lean could be a thing, but lean for me would have manifested in maybe having to do the same things that you did to get to 97 pounds. Sure. And, and uh, for me, that was never going to, uh, never say never, right? But for me, I always knew that, like that wasn't an option for me, so it had to come from the diet. And I really just had uh, th- there there was there was no uh, vision. There was really no one to turn to. And and when I talked about this stuff growing up, it kind of fell on deaf ears, you know. So I I had to hide it to the same point that you hid what you were doing. And and I kind of wish that there there was more of the maybe not Overeaters Anonymous, you know, but there was something of that that same level that was for everyone and that we knew more. Look, I knew plenty of people who went to NA and AA, you know, from our area where we grew up, but I didn't really know anyone had the food addiction and went to meetings and got help and had a sponsor and had someone like, I've been there. I can walk you through the steps. Hence to my, you know, to, the, to what I was saying of like, it took me 10 years to kind of figure this out, but I was like, well, I have to go be a beacon for others. And Again, it's crazy, you know, because I can come in and I can tell someone everything I can think of, of how to help them and, and the why, but they've got to want it. Yep. They've got to want it, you know, and, and, if, and if they aren't ready to change, then it's just going to, to your point, it's just going to manifest in something else, whether it's gambling yep. or it's coffee or espresso or, you know, cigarettes or something else. It's legal. Jordan, yeah, Mike, yeah. Mike, you kind of alluded to it before. Um, <clears throat> I mean, I know that you almost lost your leg at one point. Um Arm. Your, oh, I'm sorry, your arm. Yeah. Um, so I don't, was that the moment for you or did it go beyond that? At, at what point did you realize that the only way that you can move forward is if like you take responsibility? Yeah, it, it took me a long time to get there. I mean, it's funny as Justin was saying that stuff, to have somebody to have willingness, it, it, it's a tough thing to find. So, so to your point, Jordan, when I was in the hospital, I ended up with, a, with an abscess. I let the abscess go for a long time. Um, I had had abscesses before and usually you can kind of lance them off and that's the end of it. This one I had let go for a long, I don't want to get too graphic cause it could get a little messy, but it turned into something called MRSA. The MRSA turns into a bad infection. If you've ever seen Requiem for a Dream when it turns that deep purple color. Um, and I ended up overdosing in the bathroom of the establishment I was working at. I worked at this little Applebee's, uh, in South Florida. I was waiting tables 
And, th- t- you know, somebody found me and they took me to the emergency room. And when I got there, they had told me if I had waited two more days, they would have taken my arm off by my shoulder that the infection had spread into my blood and I was starting to get sick. Um, and one would think that a normal human being would say, you have crossed the line and this is bad and this should show you that you should stop doing this stuff. And dude, I called the, I mean, I called my guy, I want to, I called the dope man from, from the hospital bed. I had an IV in, in my mind, I had a free hit and I did not want to deal with the consequences of what was happening. Um, so it's interesting because I, I used a couple times after that from being in the hospital to getting released from the hospital. My parents had flown down. They, they, uh, at that time, a friend of mine had helped me get scholarship and to put into this treatment, uh, treatment facility. But there was like a two day lag that they couldn't take me in. And I found, you know, ways and means, even with my parents there, et cetera. And that was the last time I used, but it's not that, that it hit me, um, you know, that I, I, I somehow discovered or had some sort of, um, spiritual awakening that I shouldn't do this anymore. I wanted to continue to use. When I got into the treatment center, though, I finally heard the message for the first time. And it wasn't the therapist. It wasn't um, the NA meetings that were being brought in by by H&I. It was the tech, actually. It was the guys that were working, the, the, the employees that were with us every single day. And I had a gaping, massive hole in my arm. I mean, it was, you could see through. So he had to flush it with saline and and he'd wrap it. They called dressing it with, uh, with gauze. And he didn't judge me. He didn't look at me funny. He just, he told me his experience and we got on the level and we talked about it. And, um, he was, he was just like me and he stayed clean the same way that we talked about with the band, right? You saw other people and you said, if that guy could do it, I could certainly do that. And it was the same concept for me, but then little things start happening, right? You start getting to feel better about yourself. And I started just making some positive changes, little things. I committed to calling somebody, uh, every day, a guy that I, I ended up asking to be my sponsor, and we didn't talk about much, but he reminded me after I got out that when was the last time I could think about making a commitment for a 30-day period of time and actually fulfilling that commitment? Something as tiny as saying I'm going to call someone every day. It, I, I couldn't remember, truly. I could not tell you the last time that I had committed to doing something even so small and fulfilling that commitment. And it was the first time in a long time that I felt I felt proud of myself. I felt good. I just had a little bit of positive energy and you know some self-love. And um, the people around me, you, you start getting some of that stuff back, and, and that's really where it took place. But it didn't happen like that at all for me. Um, it took a while. So you said something really important. Uh, I don't think I knew that about you, but so it was a tech that you just vibed with. Yep. You related in some way. Maybe you saw yourself in him, uh, whatever it may be. It was the relationship between you and this tech that was powerful enough to start kind of setting the things in motion that would make you take these things more seriously. Uh, uh, so in psychotherapy, uh, you know, one of the, the many things I do, I'm a therapist. Uh, there's all kinds of different therapeutic modalities. I mean, there's cognitive behavioral, there's uh, psychodynamic. I use rhythm and drumming as a modality. Uh, research basically states that it really isn't the modality that uh, determines the effectiveness with, with a particular client or patient. It's the relationship that the client or patient has with the therapist. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that really, I, I see the, the direct parallel, no different than, look, we know that these episodes, Chocolate Croissants, uh, both as a podcast and a Facebook group, uh, 
is very meaningful in, in, in profound, positive ways for many people. We know this because people tell us this. Uh, these people identify with who we are. We're not really sharing anything like that's like novel information or wisdom, but some of these listeners uh, resonate with who we are. So when they hear it from us, they may hear the same lesson, uh, you know, 50 times prior from uh, a Tony Robbins or an Oprah or their mom. Uh, but it may just be the relationship that they have with me or Justin or Joe or Matt that is enough to kind of like let it stick for the yeah. first time in, in, in a in a in a meaningful way, and then you go from there. hundred um, percent. Yes, it's the relationship, and, and that's why models, role models, mentors, uh, becoming a mentor to other people uh, is so important. I mean, these are the foundational relationships that end up making our lives. Yeah. I, 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 I want to know, I'm going to blank on the guy's name, so I'm not even going to try to remember who it is. But I once, I once heard this gentleman speak on a podcast and, and he had this, uh, and, I, and I, I want to swear, maybe he got it from Kobe Bryant, something of that nature. But he talked about this elevator and this idea of the elevator where you're at a certain level and you should always have someone above you and someone below you. Someone that you're always uh, mentoring and someone that you're a mentee to. So you get to send the elevator down to that person and bring them up to your level. And the person above you will send the elevator down and bring you up to their level. I'm curious, outside of maybe the first sponsor and and this tech, I think maybe is what you said, the tech who was helping mm -hmm. to dress the wound. Uh, is there someone in business to get you to the place that you are currently, maybe to make a little quick transition to where we are now? Uh is there someone who you identified with, who was a mentor to you in business that allowed you to start the first business and then go on this trajectory that landed to you to the office where you currently are in? Yeah, um, 100%. There was a specific person, his name was Brad. So when I got clean, uh, I, got, I went back to Applebee's, believe it or not. They hired me back, which was great. I went back to, to slinging uh, Oriental chicken salads and... You know, you guys know, but my I had no job experience, none. I never graduated college. I um I graduated high school by the skin of my teeth, and I played music. That was my passion, and that's what I wanted to do. I had a couple odds and end jobs. I think I worked at the vet hospital down in Ricerstown Road, you know, for uh, about a month and a half, and and Ellie's Deli, if you remember that gem when it was around. Carmen's but, was inside of Ellie's Deli at one point. Very perfect. I love it. Back. Yeah, I love it. But I had, I had yeah. Sorry, Joe. Have you been to a deli before? Uh, we have things, well, it's just short for delicatessen, right? Yes. Well, of yeah, course, we have, you would say it in that accent. <laughs> well, we don't call them delis here. We call them delicatessens. <laughs> say it in a different accent. What accent do you want me to say it in? Jordan. Do the, uh, the Matt Halpern accent. Yeah. Oh, Jesus. Um, <laughs> delicatessen. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> and, 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 and last question. When you go to one of these delicatessens, what would you typically order? I would, well, you don't, typically you don't go and sit down in a, a delicatessen in the UK. You go and get some fine cheese, maybe some dried meats and some olives. Huh. Yeah. All right. But then some, for, some have coffee tables. Thanks for humoring us. Yeah, you don't say, you don't say coffee tables. Coffee tables. Um, so, Mike, you were piecemealing <laughs> job experience together. And then, all, and then all of a sudden you, you create like a monster recovery center business. Yeah. 
So if you want me to fast forward through it, I can. I, no, no, uh, the wait, guy, so you, you started with Brad, and, and what did you Brad. do together? So he, he yoked me up as I wanted to change careers and get out of the restaurant business, and he taught me how to um, sell health insurance. And he helped me to get my record expunged, and I went through a process. And I, I think this is an important thing to talk about, and I don't know that I've told you about this before, but there was an experience that I had when I had about three and a half years clean, maybe four years clean, where I was working for Brad for a different business. It was not our business. And the laws changed with the product that we were selling and you had to get an insurance license. Up to that point, you did not have to have a license. You just had to be good on the phone. And if you can't tell, I like to talk and I could sell all sorts of stuff. So I was very good at it. I excelled and um, yeah, I got a promotion. I was managing a team of people, but now you had to get this license. And the license was a requirement for health life and variable annuities. And with annuities, you're talking about stock transactions and things like that. And they don't like felons to, um, to have a variable annuity license. And I applied and they denied me. And I was like devastated. And I remember it was the first time in my recovery, especially after, after having re-identified myself, right? I had another, something that I liked to do when I was kind of reestablishing, I felt good. Um, I was, it was a big blow to me at the time. And I thought, well, it was a good try. Fuck it, that's it. I'm gonna have to go back to, to working at Applebee's. The cool part about recovery, and, and we talked about the 12 steps and how that stuff can transition right? And the principles that has nothing to do with drugs. But for me, it was taking the same concepts and then applying them in, in life. And we talk about, you know, being diligent and having courage and be, having integrity and doing all these different things. So um, I talked to people about it, I raised my hand. And they told me, well, you should apply again, but you should write a letter and you should explain to them what you're doing and that you've turned your life around and, you know, all this good stuff. So I did, I took the suggestion and I wrote this, you know, three and a half page letter about I'm the best and you'd be doing a disservice to the health insurance industry if you didn't give me a license and yada, yada. And I used to do all these horrible things and now I'm clean. Then you should really reconsider. And they denied it again. And it was just, it was a devastating event. And I always try to talk about this stuff whenever I speak at meetings or anything, because it was one of those road, the crossroads, right? Where for a lot of people, and this was me, and I know that a lot of people can relate to it. To me, what really separates somebody who is successful and someone who settles is when we are met with resistance and we have something that's difficult that's set in front of us, regardless of what it is. It could be in a relationship with another person. It could be in, in work, in, in business. It could be in, you go to order the delicatessen and they don't have the olives that you like, stuff with the blue cheese, whatever the case may be. If we're met with some sort of resistance, it's the ability to be able to see past that and continue to persevere without any expectation of it working out and driving that home is what separates the people in my experience from people that can gain and have success in whatever dynamic that is. Again, that could be with a relationship. It doesn't have to be work. And the people that unfortunately end up settling. And there's nothing wrong with settling either. I've met plenty of people that don't have that same instance and that's okay too. For me, I was very much, I blamed everyone for my problems for so long. And that was the core of my addiction, the core of my problem. It was always your fault. It was never me. I had no ability to have introspection and look at my own participation in things, um, to be able to take personal responsibility, right, for my own actions. And this was the first time ever where I remember thinking it's everyone else's fault and poor me, poor me, look at all this work that I did and I'm getting the short end of the stick. I finally have something that I like. I have a good trajectory and I, and I, I can't do it. Um, and I started looking at it differently. And I started asking questions to people again. And, you know, 
practicing principles and things like that. And what I realized was, well, well, who am I to an insurance board? I'm nobody, right? I'm going to write this letter. Again, I'm some schmuck that wants to get an insurance license. However, what if I get other people that are important people? And what if they write letters and character reference me and tell me that I am a good person? And, you know, it's interesting because in, in, in the fellowship that I belong to in NA, there's all sorts of people. It's like a big fraternity. And I'm friends with a drug court judge. I'm friends with business owners. I'm friends with CEOs of companies. I'm friends with well-established people in the community. And I asked all of them to write me letters. And by showing up enough, I was able to get 38 character reference letters. And I submitted the application with 38 character reference letters of people that were way more established than I was. And they approved my license. And it was such a small thing in retrospect because it's an insurance license, but it wasn't the license. It was the the entire exercise of going through that progress with no guarantee of it becoming successful that was so important to me. And from there, it became like a rocket ship. You know, within the first uh, a year later, we started our first health insurance agency, and um, it was uh, the first business actually failed horribly. It was uh, it lasted about a year and a half. I was not in control. I had no voting rights. I didn't even understand what voting rights were or what an operating agreement was or uh, how to invest or anything. I knew nothing. But I learned in that year and a half a lot of what not to do in business, more or less. And um, I got there was a little bit of luck and, and, and a lot of uh, tenacity to, to work hard. And I linked up with an old friend of mine from, from way back when named Bobby. And uh, we were both clean. We're both in recovery both living in Florida. He was actually the first person I stole his weed when we were 13 and a half, 14 years old. This is the first time I smoked. That's how long back we go history-wise. And we started a business. It was a weird offshoot subsidiary of the health insurance. It was it was prescription advocacy and helping people get medications um, through indigent programs offered by pharmaceutical companies and offering a service fee. And it exploded, man. We had a lot of success with it. Years later, I sold that business parlayed that into opening our first um, substance abuse treatment facility. This was in Florida. It's where I was living still. And then from there, it was like a, a rocket ship, man. You know, unfortunately, my old partner, Bradley, relapsed. And he was my mentor, man. He he taught me about business. And, you know, our relationship shifted after that. And, and you know, the trust was was obviously broken. And I was in a different place. And I met my new partners, Um and one of them, by sheer coincidence, is from Maryland, from Pikesville. I grew up in Owens Mills. For those that don't know what that is, they're towns right next to one another. So in, in Yiddish, my partners are, are religious. They call it beshert, meaning it was, it was meant to be. All Everything lined up at the perfect time in the perfect place, and we were able to move back home. So you fast forward now, I've been back for two and a half years, something like that, back in Baltimore. And we now have um, 13 treatment centers in six different states. We have, I think we just hit 682 employees. Um, I employ felons. Uh, you know, we, we, we do all the things that I would have hoped that people had, had did for me and gave me opportunities and things like that. And that's just the treatment centers. There's another, you know, if I'm being specific, nine or 10 other businesses that are uh, complete offshoots, ancillary and subsidiary businesses that are either attached to the substance abuse centers themselves, whether that's ancillary billing or, or, or different services like that. We own real estate in all the states that we exist in. Those become other, you know, uh, business vessels, and uh, I can go on and on about it. But it's the trajectory of what happened on all the groundwork that was placed was really started with with music, right, and camaraderie, and, and the band, and the creative energy, and then that morphed into thankfully me hitting a uh, a bottom that I was able to recover from, and then being at the place we are now. Real quick, Justin, I'm sorry. Um, 
I think that, Mike, thanks. I think that's a really like succinct, clear through line from you starting in a band uh, to the dip with the addiction, uh, to the rise of learning how business works. Again, there were dips in the business journey then, as you're probably experiencing now, as we all are going through a global pandemic. Yep. Um, one of your employees is, is a great guy um, who wrote a feature when he was working at the Jewish Times on the Chaka Croissants podcast. Nice. Yeah, man. Uh, Graham, Connor. Connor. Yeah, yeah. Oh, we yeah. love Connor. Um, and he actually came to uh, when uh, Misha is the guitar player in Matt's band Periphery. Um, and we live streamed that on Facebook. Joe, you may have even been watching that at the time. Yeah, um, I remember. We that. had like Clearly. well over, you know, well over 10,000 people watching live. And, uh, and there he was sitting in the corner taking his notes for the, uh, uh, for the story. And, and now he's a writer for, for Amidus Health for your company. Um, he's a great guy too. We love Connor. Yeah, totally. Um, uh, Justin, I'm sorry. I just wanted to jump in there with that. Oh, you're fine. And, and uh, what, a, what a great guy. He was working at Mom's Organic, uh, uh, like a local uh, grocery store. And it was close to the school I went to where <laughs> I went back to, to get a second degree. Um, and, and I remember him growing up at shows. Uh, I think I sold him maybe like my, my first real bass rig. I like sold it to him. I mean, we have, we've got a lot of history. So um, that, that, that's really cool to hear that that's where he landed. Because I, I think for a little while he was in uh, limbo, not sure which direction to go with his writing. So I, I had no idea, but that's a that's a, a great little nugget to share. So I'm I'm super pumped about that. Um, I'm curious when two things you said camaraderie, and it's something I was thinking about earlier. Being in a band, this circle, the camaraderie that you have with others. When you're in a band, it's like running a business with these other people. Or I always even thought about it sometimes as it's it's like I've got three other girlfriends. And I've got to make all the schedules line up so we can practice and figure all the ins and outs uh, of, of, of how do we make this dynamic work in the relationship. I'm curious, uh, as you got older, did you feel that the sense of camaraderie you had being younger and being in bands, was that a similar idea that manifested when you decided to get into business for yourself? Did you always know, I, I'm not a solo entrepreneur, do these ventures on my own. I want to have partners uh, in the same manner. And I'm also curious, you said, I think it was Bobby was your first partner who relapsed. No, no, no. Bobby's still clean. It oh, was Bobby's Bradley. Clean. Yeah. Bradley. Bobby's still right. doing wonderful. He's doing amazing and, and he's clean and has children. Yeah. He's okay. doing great. Wonderful. The, the bees, I got lost in the bees. So when you have someone in your, in your inner circle, your quality circle, who's that close to you when they relapse, is it hard uh, on your own psyche about thinking, uh, what if that was me? Or maybe I'd rather that be me than him right now. It, does that go through through your mind? That's an interesting question. I've never been asked that. So to compartmentalize it, because there was two questions there. So yeah. the camaraderie piece I'll talk about first. It's interesting because I didn't choose to have partners necessarily for the camaraderie side of it. I chose to have partners because I'm very acutely aware that I'm not good at everything. Now, the things that I'm good at, I believe I'm very good at. I think I excel at the areas that I am, am good at um, and I'm able to adapt and execute to the best of my ability. However, in order to grow, certainly to the place that we've grown now, my partners, thank goodness, are good at the areas that I suck at. And they happen to suck at the areas that I'm good at. It's a beautiful marriage. And you talked about, you said like having girlfriends in the band. It's the exact same scenario. It is like being married to a bunch of other dudes 
without a sexual component. So you don't even have the good shit to look forward to. You know what I mean? Um, and, and really just have a, a common goal in mind to continue to drive. But I do believe wholeheartedly that although that wasn't my original intention on why I have partners, it's the same concept. You know, when I was in the band, they were my brothers. We shared openly with one another. We had the same goals in mind. And that's why it was easy. It was easy. It's, it, there's difficult times. But it was easy to get through the difficult times because the vision is greater than all of our personalities, right? If we had conflict, it always got resolved for the most part because we had this goal, this collective goal in mind. And that's the same thing with business. You know, we have plenty of arguments. We have plenty of disagreements. I could be a real asshole um, to work for and to work with is the, is the truth. I have, I have high expectations of people and I, I want people to work as hard as I do and to believe in, in the things that we believe in as much as, as I do. But um, we get through that because we have the same vision. Right? We have the same goals in mind, and it's easy to kind of combat that. The second question, it's, it's interesting with the camaraderie piece because you get so close to people. I've heard people say, like, you shouldn't hire your friends. and you know, it, I've, been, I've, I've done a pretty good job of being able to compartmentalize business relationships and personal relationships and separate the two of those things. But at the same time, with what we do with the treatment centers, there's a whole fulfillment out of that because I'm in recovery. We get to see people do well for themselves and grow and get clean. And it's also a business. So we are financially successful as well. And when it comes down to it, it's it, it becomes easier to make money. I don't want to make money with just anybody. I like to make money with people that I love and that I care about. The same way the fulfillment with music was with people I love and that I care about. And that camaraderie exists. When Brad relapsed, I was devastated. I mean, this was... I put him on such a pedestal at that time. This was someone in my life that, I mean, for all intents and purposes, was my business sponsor, right? Not in recovery, but when it came to business things and, and, and really taught me everything. I mean, he yoked me up and believed in me when nobody else would. And um, I never even thought it could happen, you know? The relapse itself wasn't what ruined the relationship. It was the trust because there was the it wasn't like a small time. It was a long period of time that he had been lying about it and then it got discovered. And and it's tough because I had a difficult time um, just building that back up again. And we did eventually. It got it got better and then really just our visions no longer aligned with what our, our goals were with the business. But um, it started unfortunately from the relapse and I don't judge him for it and I don't blame him for it. It can happen to me, it could happen to anybody. Um, and I worked really hard on trying to monitor my own um, reaction in the way that I acted around him after that happened. Because God forbid that happens to me, I can only hope and pray that I don't get judged the way that I see some people get judged. And that I can make it back into the rooms or, or to do something because it's my ego and every, it would be one of the most difficult thing I ever had to do. I respect everybody that can do that stuff, you know, including him. Well said, man. Um the interest of time, I want to make sure we include this in the conversation because it's one of the things that I respect most about you, Mike. Um, you have an, an incredibly full life. Uh, you have a, a big business that you co-own and cooperate uh, with many employees. Um, you have your own recovery journey. You have a lovely f family, uh, you know, a, a great wife and two children. Um, but you also cultivate time uh, to explore your passion of like horror uh, films and 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 pop culture memorabilia, uh, you started another business with like vintage collectibles in Florida, um, mm -hmm. and your your office 
uh, is full of that stuff. Not where you are right now, but uh, your main office. Uh, and I've been in your basement and the entire, you got like a little playroom for the kids and then like a massive playroom for yourself. <laughs> um, they so, do have a second playroom upstairs. I swear to God, I'm not that selfish, but yes. <laughs> um, so for me, one of the reasons why, why I bring that up and why I so respect that about you is, look, we, we've talked about identities uh, a lot in, in this conversation so far. We all have multiple identities. We all have different things that we're interested in. And I think it is a disservice to us uh, when we don't make time uh, for the things that we're most naturally drawn to. And that can be a wide array of different things. Um, you know, I've got this fucking pro wrestling poster behind me um, and loved it so much that I found ways to make it a career for a period of my life. Um, and because I've been able to do that, I was able to relieve so much uh, stress that I had felt building because it was this, this passion that I so badly wanted to explore but knew I wasn't doing it when I was just staying on the path of like music and mental health. Um, so how did that start, especially the business that you started, the vintage goods business? Um, I'm, I'm curious how that started. And like, how did you decide to take it from like a garage hobby to like an actual business in the world? So it's the same way that I function in most areas of my life. If it feels right, and an opportunity presents itself, I, I do it. It's, it's, I mean, it's really that simple. If I can afford to, and I'm okay with losing money, if there's, if it's more fun, and, and I feel that the the avenue is something that's productive, then I just that, that's pretty much sometimes all the diligence that I need in some instances um, to move forward with something. So collecting stuff has always been my passion. I mean, people talk about like meditation and 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 um, you know, well care for yourself. I don't work out. For all intents and purposes, I drink more coffee than I do water every single day. I smoke cigars. I am not the most healthy human being on the planet at all. Um, and what I do for my own mental health outside of you know recovery and things like that, because that is a part of my life, but it's not my whole life. I love, I love playing with my kids. I love it. It's one of the best things that I ever dreamed that I could have because I just didn't know what that could even be like when I was younger before I had children. And I love to go yard sailing, man. I love flea markets. I love yard sailing. I just love that stuff. I, if I could go, I convinced my little girls it's called treasure hunting. So I, I literally yoke them up on Saturdays. And now with the pandemic, we can't. But whenever it's over, and we go treasure hunting. And for me, it's a bonding experience for them. And I get to look for all my stuff. And I don't know what it is. It's just a passion of mine. I love collecting stuff. And it's almost like meditation um, to be able to go out and do that. It, it transformed into the business. I, did you have, if the hand goes up, do I stop the thought? Okay. <laughs> I don't keep know how going, it works. Going. No, when, when you're done, I just have a question about when you're done. Keep going. Perfect. So Kelly, my wife, whom also I love, and I mentioned before, we met on tour. You know, Kelly used to come see shows and for all intents and purposes was a, a big fan of the band. And, and we connected when we were like 19 and then through a bizarre series of events, time passed and we reconnected when I was clean. And I, I you know, basically kidnapped her down to Florida and we'll be married nine years, November. And she loves antiques and like old 50s stuff. And she's very much into that side of it. And um, we had our first daughter in Florida. And when Hannah turned two, we decided, you know, let's send her to, to daycare. And Kelly wanted to do something. And we both share a passion for antiques and collectibles. I met a guy on Craigslist, which is the best way to meet people, right? And uh, 
we, we just bonded over Star Wars, old Star Wars stuff and old monsters, you know, old, you know, uh, uh, creatures from the Black Lagoon and Universal Monster stuff. And he pitched me on the idea. This guy knows more. He could identify a weapon from 1982 and tell you what series it's from. I learned more from him on the collectible side of things than anybody else. And um, he needed some funding. And he would run the shop, the day-to-day operations. You know, my problem typically with other businesses is it's a bandwidth issue. I can only do so much, right? So I, I love it, but I told him I can't operate. I can't really be there on a daily basis. And a retail store, I've never had experience with that before. But if you're going to run it, I trusted him. Um, we just said, fuck it. I, I, I wrote a pro forma, and um, Kelly was going to uh, really run the shop with him. She was passionate about it, and we we just did it. And between all the extra crap I had in my you know garage at the time and his, we were able to fill the shop up. And the shop is not only still running, but it's had uber success over the last few years. So when I moved back to Maryland, we gave Jesse the rights to the shop, and um, I, I felt comfortable at that point taking profits when I wasn't even there. But the deal was, if he got really awesome monster stuff or old Star Wars stuff, then I got it at cost, and he had to ship it down. So that's still that relationship still exists, and Jesse and I are still very close. And um, we're debating starting one in Maryland, actually, so I don't want to give away too much, but over the next seven months to uh, a year, when my now youngest turns two, we might uh, rinse and repeat here, so we'll see. The shop that exists now, how can people find that online? KelseyVintageGoods.com. Okay. We'll put yeah. that in the show notes, too. Go for cool. it, Justin. And, and then I want to bring in Joe, because I know Joe can relate to some of the, the horror stuff far better than I ever could. Yeah, Um uh, I'm, I'm curious. I remember when Jordan and I must have been in South Florida. This is probably going on, I don't know, half a dozen years ago, six, seven years ago, and your car was full of collectible merchandise stuff, right? For most people, it was just stuff, right? And then for others, it's this passion that, that maybe they're these just collectors and they have this niche and it's this one thing they collect. I know for me, when I finally thought I like figured out tone when it came to the bass guitar, I became yeah. obsessed. And obsessed, you know, was an, an understatement. I mean, it's it's so much more than an obsession. And and you start you start to go on this this hunt uh, that seems like it's never going to end. It's the perfect tone. What's the perfect combination of things? So, if you know, and and of course, the older it got, the more collectible it got. Like when when Fender, Clarence Leo Fender owned Fender, that stuff is worth a lot more than something that was made last year. Sure. So. I had to buy and sell and flip and trade and do all the things that collectors do to finally be able to say I've got like one of the holy grails, the pre-CBS Fender instruments, which people who are into music will understand this. Maybe others won't, but but you start to realize like, okay, now I've got one of them, but there's multiple, so you want to keep going. Uh, I still haven't found maybe the holy grail. But maybe one day I will. I'm curious in your collection, you have all this stuff and you've got a guy who when he gets the cream of the crop at cost, he just sends it to you. Right. That's a luxury. Most people don't have that. hundred percent. When they're collectors. Right. What what is the tippy top of the mountain? If you were like I can keep thinking of Sisyphus who had to roll the rock up the hill and then it went back down and he had to roll it back up again. Condemned for life. Right. I think you're in this for life. A hundred percent. May at the like at the last moment, you know, you finally get to the tippy top and the rock doesn't go down. What's up there? What's the toy that's at the top of the mountain? What's the collectible? And maybe you already have it in your collection, or it's something that's like, well, it's that thing that's worth like one point eight million dollars when Christie sells it in New York City at auction, right. and maybe not right now. 
what's that? What is that one piece? It's a really interesting question. So I, I was big into Star Wars, and I still am. But the original series was, you know, the figures came out in 79. They ran it through 83. And then they started doing a secondary series in 85 called the Droids and the Ewok series, which get a little wonky. But there was a Boba Fett action figure specifically that they just discovered. I think there's three of them in the entire world where he actually has a, a um, backpack, the rocket ship, that, that it can trigger with a button that explodes off his back. I think one just sold at auction for like 185000 That, to me, would be the grail. I have... I have every figure from uh, 79 to 83, and the 77s, excuse me. Um, I'm missing some weapons, so don't judge me, but I will get the weapons. But I have the complete set. I'm now trying to get the set in the carded uh, side of it, and the, there's a bunch of different backs on the cards. You can get really granular with, with a lot of that stuff, but that would be the Boba Fett would probably be it as far as Star Wars is concerned. With the monster stuff, there's so much amazing monster stuff that – is out there that I don't even know about yet. It's one of those things you can just keep exploring and keep digging and finding just uh, an endless amount of, of ridiculously awesome and cool items. Have you seen Rob Zombie, who is a filmmaker, musician, uh, artist, you name it, it seems like he's into it, right? And he does it, but he's a horror guy. Yeah. Have, by chance, have you seen his house? I mean, it's like a, no. it's a museum of horror. If your family would allow you, would the whole house be taken over and not just this like playroom that's next to another like kid playroom? Would the whole house be uh, monster themed potentially? Absolutely. One thousand percent. The deal we made when we moved into the house and thankfully we bought a, a fairly decent sized house. So I have a good 600 square feet in the basement. That's mine. You know, so it's decent. I'm already out of space, though. So I've now cannibalized all the way up on the third floor. There's one office which has now been cannibalized and i'm debating buying a uh, a larger off-site i wouldn't call it a shed like one of those 30 by 30 joints that i can get air conditioning in that's that's been on the agenda for quite a while you just keep, you always run out of space you know what i mean it's a uh, space and time is the commodity man real quick before jordan hops on i just want to add one more thing i think we can get you to work out which i think is important for everyone coming from the you know the health the nutrition the food side uh I think training is really important. And just so you know, and now they're sold out, so they're a little bit more collectible. There's a company called Onnit, O-N-N-I-T, great company. They did a license deal with Star Wars. So I guess that's mm -hmm. Lucasfilm or Disney, whatever it is now, right? Uh, they made a Boba Fett kettlebell. If you've seen oh, these kettlebell cool. things, you swing, right? Yeah. They have that. They have a Darth Vader, uh, and they have a Stormtrooper. They also have a Han Solo yoga mat. And they have um, uh, Death Star, the, the, the uh, Slam Ball. So nice. I think now that they're sold out and you're a collectible kind of guy, I think we should go on a hunt. We should find these pieces for you. I think it'll get you kicked in and inspired. You'll, you're going to be like shredded to the nines, jacked to the tits. You're gonna the problem with collectibles, though, I'd never use them. I'd put them in a nice glass case and we'd look at them and they would sit there uh, you know, and gain value. We'll get you four of them and the third set there you, you use. Done, well, done. I have played your WWF arcade pinball machine. Yes. So I, that I was very excited to, to touch. Um, Joe, I'm, I'm curious where, where you would take this as it relates to horror. Um, someone asked me uh, a couple of years back who didn't get horror at all why I like horror films and enjoy watching horror films. And I couldn't give them an answer because I was thinking about it. And I couldn't think what about... I mean, I, I know that there's, when I watch it, there's a part of me that switches on and I, I start like 
feeding off it. But I can't describe that to someone who doesn't like horror films or the whole horror vibe. Um, I can't tell them why I enjoy it. And I'm, I'm interested to know uh, if, if you have ever thought about that, and ever described it to someone. It's funny because someone asked me that question before fairly recently, which is probably the only reason I would even have any sort of response to it because I never really thought about it before. It's just something I enjoyed and I liked. And But it's interesting because I don't like all horror-themed things. The new horror films, that's the jump out and kind of scare you, I, I'm really not into it, to be honest with you. I've never really – I'll go watch it, don't get me wrong, but it's not something that I would turn on the television. It's the, the old horror stuff um, – all the way back, I mean, like Hellraiser we were talking about before, so I'm not talking about all, it doesn't have to all be 30s and 50s and 60s, but certainly for me, I think the idea is just, it's something that's, that's I love sci-fi, right? I desperately want to believe in everything that's put out there in the sci-fi realm. I believe in all of it. Uh, the aliens, supernatural, doesn't matter. I love it. I want to believe it. You can never convince me otherwise because I want, I want to believe there's more out there. I like that stuff. And the idea of having a concept of something that's so different, unique, and new, you know, I remember talking to my father, and he would describe to me when they went to the, um, you know, back then there was only a couple movie theaters typically that premiered stuff, and, and when the first Mummy came out, right, or the first Wolfman movie came out, it was so scary and baffling to them because this was such a unique idea. It was so original, right? None, nothing like that existed, and the idea of of having something like that in the world that could be real and wasn't real. That's the stuff that, that I love, just that, you know, everything's a fucking remake. You know what I mean? I, I like that mm -hmm. original thought and idea that really is able to, um, I don't know, just make somebody think a little bit differently. For me, it's that nostalgia and, and you know, kind of kitsch feeling that I like about it. Yeah. Okay. I don't know if that makes sense. No, it does. And I totally understand what you're saying about the sort of uh, jump scare horror trend at the moment. Um, have you seen, I can't remember the director's name, but there's two horror directors at the moment that I really rate. Um, one's called Ari, Ari Aster, I think, and he directed, um, Hereditary and Midsummer. Okay. So you should definitely check those out. I haven't seen them. Yeah, they're fantastic. And Midsummer is about, um, it's a, a cult film based in Sweden in the summer. So it's 24 hours of daylight. <laughs> oh, wow. So the whole thing is shot in beautiful daylight and it's beautiful scenery and flowers and it's incredibly disturbing. So you should go see that. And then I can't remember the director's name, but he directed um, The Witch and uh, The Lighthouse. Okay. Uh, Lighthouse is kind of recent and it's got William Dafoe and Robert Pattinson. Oh, wow. And they're the only two cast members. The whole thing's shot in black and white and in a square format. Um, and it's the craziest thing. It's all, it's got like Lovecraftian lore and stuff in it. Um, and it's fantastic. Um, but Robert Eggers. Yes. Thank you. He's doing a, his next film is about Vikings or something. Um, I can't remember what I was going to ask now. <laughs> but Mike, it seems like you're more of like into like monsters. I like the monsters. Yeah, and old and yeah. old disturbing. Like Clockwork Orange is still probably one of my top top three movies of all time. It's Kubrick right. and you know the whole nine yards. But all the, these are like all costumes that you could wear or like figures that you could get. So yes. it, it seems like a lot of it is like there's a visual aesthetic that you're really attracted to, a character kind of study that you're attracted to. Um, I mean, yeah. for me, for me, like 
I don't really care about horror films. Um, I don't watch them. One of my favorite things in life to do is to go to haunted houses and haunted hayrides. Um, I typically don't even get that scared. I wish I would get scared more. You know, I'm the type to be like, yo, let me go in the front so they get me first. But as I'm going through this stuff, like I'm more interested in like the set design. And I'm more interested in like how the characters, the people are attempting to scare me and other people. And mm. uh, that's that's how I relate to it. No different than when I watch, uh, you know, Monday Night Raw. Uh, I'm not just watching the match in the ring. I'm watching the production of it. I'm watching like at what points in a match do they pitch to go to commercial to hook the viewer enough to wait through the commercial to return. Um, and for whatever reason, I've been interested in like, the 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 secrets behind like the art or the secrets behind the magic and that's what kind of turns me on um but yeah but I, cool. I i i see i guess in the ways that like uh, you get really excited whether it's star wars uh or frankenstein or whatever um you're just even in how you performed in, in as a musician like you dressed the part you acted the part you were like yourself but very much like uh this definable character I love it. I think there's something so different about uh, the monster genre and horror. They, you know, I mean, of course, it's like a niche within its thing. But, but I always, I, I would talk about horror with people, new horror, and it feels cheap. Yeah, you can do all these cheap tactics. It, it's like in music, you know, you can go to a certain chord. You know, you can play a certain progression of four chords. And, and everyone identifies with that, whether they understand music or not, they all just go like, oh, huh, you know, oh, those four chords, that's that played a, you know, a, a million songs that were popular. Right. I think in in horror, as I'm getting kissed by a dog, uh, in, in the horror of today, it's cheap. It's it's cheap in a sense of you can make things very dark. You can make a character very scary. And then you kind of set it up and boom, there's the payoff. It's not like when I think of Frankenstein or Dracula or these like classic characters, there's something so lovable about those characters. You can really sink your teeth into it. It's so much deeper than just like this scary entity. You know, I mean, Dracula just wanted to be loved. Frankenstein is this like, you know, this idea from like a mad scientist, right? That like birth is the thing. And it's like, you know, I think you, there's there's universal messages that are so much bigger and it shouldn't really be that scary with the monsters. Right. Versus today, horror, I think, can be. And I'm not saying all because I know like Midsummer is a much newer movie. And I remember when that came out and that was like people are like for for horror fans, real fans. You got to go see that. Just like not every pop song is cheap. Right. Yeah. In substance. It's like some some go really deep. Uh, so I, I can see where maybe someone would identify with the monster genre and love it and not really care as much maybe about the new stuff of horror. And it's just more you know, a moment in time. I'm, I'm interested yeah. because you love like one of the most more modern sort of people who's really uh, regarded as being a genius with the monster designers, Guillermo del Toro. Mm -hmm. Are you into much of his stuff? So, yeah, and he's done a lot of different things, but some mm. of his stuff I like and some of it I don't like. Some of it can get a little kitschy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, but he's done a ton yeah yeah um i've just always regarded him and his monster design as phenomenal mm -hmm. um and I, I love a bunch of his things but i think uh 
Justin and Jordan, you kind of actually just made me realize why I like horror. Um, describing uh, Jordan, you saying you going into these haunted houses, which by the way, I'm terrified of and I can't do, which is kind of funny. But um, you're saying you're, you're looking at like the set design and how the actors are like doing their role. And I think maybe that's what it is. I love finding new horror films that find a new way to make my stomach drop. And it's the same thing in music. I love finding new artists that make me feel certain ways in different ways. And that's, I think that's why I find them both so inspiring is it's cause it's opening. It's like broadening my vision maybe. Um, and cause like when I think about all my favorite horror films, it's they've each invoked something new in me, which is one of the reasons I love Hellraiser so much. Like, cause I only saw that last year, maybe. Uh, and it's instantly like one of my favorite films just because I hadn't seen anything like it. And there's something about those uh, couple decades of horror films that when you watch them now, they're kind of scarier because we're so used to seeing everything photorealistic. Mm-hmm. Um, and when you go back and watch those films, like the prosthetics aren't great, but there's something about that that kind of makes it creepier and a bit like trippier. And uh, like you feel like you're really engrossed in it. I don't know. But yeah, thanks for uh, making me work out why I like things I like. That's cool. Well, look, man. so amazing. That's the wealth of awareness. Um, So look, I want to start docking this boat. I want to be mindful of all of our, you know, the time, uh, you know, for Justin, Mike, and myself. Uh, It's like seven, I guess, for you, Joe, it's near midnight. Um, But he just had a great breakthrough in his life. I love it. You know, it could be four in the morning and he's pumped. Right, Joe? Hellraiser. Hellraiser is so good too. I just watched it in my last flight before COVID happened. It's just unbelievable. It always holds up. Always holds up. Is it Pinhead? Yeah. Yeah. He's one of the one of the centibytes. Well, oh. let's let's maybe we can we can in this in the COVID world that we live in, we can host one of those um watch parties. Dude. And we can watch, you know, maybe that and a few other great horror classics that Jordan and I probably haven't seen. Yeah. Absolutely. And meanwhile, they ended up making like nine, no exaggeration, I think there's nine or ten Hellraiser sequels. Or not sequels, but might be 11. Yeah, might be 11. (laughs) It was insane. They just kept going. Huh, look, we're all learning things on this episode. Um, So, Mike, I I, want to give you the the opportunity uh, to share anything that you haven't shared yet that feels important to you. But also, I'd like to acknowledge that uh, I think I can safely guarantee uh, there will be at least one person, if not many people, uh, listening to this uh, on a podcast app or watching it on YouTube that is currently struggling with addiction. Uh, so I'm curious, uh, what is your message to that person that is listening right now? To someone struggling with addiction specifically? Yeah. Call and get help. It does not have to be at one of my treatment centers. It makes no difference to us. And sometimes we always talk about this. There's different things that are available to different people for different reasons. But the idea is to talk about it, to understand that other people are going through the exact same things as you. And we've talked about it a lot on this episode. The only consistent thing with addiction of any kind, whether it's food or gambling or sex or drugs or alcohol, is the feelings. It's the feelings that are associated with all of it. And those types of feelings can come out in so many different ways. So if you want me to summarize it in a sentence, it's call and talk to somebody. And there's a better – there's a way out. Regardless of how bad it feels right now, it doesn't always have to feel that bad, and, and it, it 100% gets better. Yeah, uh, thanks for sharing that. I, I think you are proof of that. Um, 
look, from going to the point of almost having a, a limb taken from you uh, to having like an amazing family, an amazing business. Um, and from my perspective, as a friend of yours, like you seem to like have peace and happiness. And it, it's, it's really nice to have experienced that journey, you know, alongside you starting as a fan uh, to, to eventually a close friend. Um, so Mike, I, I, we really appreciate all the time that you've given us. Um, I love you dearly. Um, Justin, as my brother, I love you dearly. Uh, Jungle Joe Hamilton. I just gave you that new nickname. I love you dearly as well. <laughs> I love it. Alliterations all day. Jungle Joe. Right. Um, and Matt was here in spirit with us and, and, and I'm sure sometime in the future <laughs> we can do this again with you, Mike. Uh, cause I, I even still, I feel like We've only scratched the surface with um, your story and your personality. Um, so I think it would be cool to do this again at some point with Matt Absolutely. in the conversation. Um, Agreed. So look, that's it. I don't know if I'm going to have like some like sort of big out because usually Matt pitches to me. So all I'm going to say is uh, one more time. Uh, oh, I guess I do the... Yo, Joe, you can do the Facebook group thing. Yeah. Uh, for anyone who wants to hop in the conversation... We've got a really great private and safe uh, group on Facebook, which you can find at facebook.com slash groups slash chocolate croissants. Uh, we are active. Community members are active. We try and post in between episodes and even uh, sort of give you sneak peeks. Um, so if you want a nice, constructive, encouraging and yeah, safe place uh, to talk about anything, come over there. And uh, we and loads of other people are going to be there listening. And if you would like to see uh, Jungle Joe's beautiful face on this episode, this very episode that you may be listening to, but you're not watching, you can now go to youtube.com slash chocolate croissants to see Jungle Joe in all his glory. Jordan, take <laughs> Joe, it away. I, I think that's going to stick, my man. You should be Jungle Jordan. Look at your background. <laughs> <laughs> Touche. Uh, I love that you use the adjective, um, uh, I guess not an adjective, the verb hop, hop into the Facebook group. Yeah. Um, so uh, we, Mike is there. You're there, Mike. Yeah. You're, you're hearting the things. You're liking the things. I like um, them a lot. I do, yeah. the, I do the liking and the heart emojis. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> so if you're listening, come join us in community on Facebook. Uh, we love you all. Uh, we hope you're well. We hope you're safe. Uh, please be kind to yourself. And until next time...